Welcome to the practice of being seen. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist and founder of Connectfulness. I believe that when you truly see yourself, you create a ripple effect that allows you to be the change you wish to see in the world. And that invites everyone around you to do the same. In these curated discussions, I invite you to make space to see yourself. But here's a little warning. The practice of being seen might lead to deeper intimacy, less fear, and more creative, bold action. Are you ready to deepen your practice and be seen? Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to episode 44 of the Practice of Being Seen podcast. Today, we're joined by Cindy Darnell, one of Australia's leading sex and relationship therapists. She's spearheading progressive sex, well-being, and relationship seminars for adults that deeply change people's lives. She shared her work to acclaim across Australia, the UK, and the US, including the prestigious Omega Institute in New York, the School of Life, and she has shared stages with the likes of Dan Savage. In 2015, she was the only sexologist named in Mind Body Green's Top 100 Women to Watch. Her approach spans the clinical to the esoteric, with papers published in the Journal of Sex and Relationship Therapy and the Journal of Sex Education, both in the UK, plus a short story in the Women of Letters Anthology, signed, sealed, and delivered with Penguin Books. She's currently working on her first book, exploring the fusion of the mind, body, and heart in enhancing and exploring libido and desire. Her degrees range from a bachelor in education, diplomas in counseling and linguistics, to two master's degrees in sexology and psychotherapy. A regular at Melbourne's Wheeler Center, she is a media commentator whose opinion is frequently sought for TV, radio, and print, including ABC's Lukewarm Sex, The Project, The Huffington Post, and much more. Cindy has been a featured guest on groundbreaking sexuality podcasts, such as Sex with Emily, Sex Out Loud, and Sex Nerd Sandra. In 2015, she released the Atlas of Erotic Anatomy and Arousal, a pioneering educational video series designed to give upfront adult information about sex, the body, and most importantly, pleasure. She counsels individuals and couples, offers trainings to professionals on sex and the human condition, and offers insight into quandaries of the erotic to transform fear into freedom. Currently based in Australia and soon to be in New York City in 2018. Welcome, Cindy. It's really lovely to be here. I, I'm, I've been looking forward to it all week. Oh, I have too. You know, I've... I met you in person, like, what was it, like two years ago? But then mm -hmm. my husband and I, as you know, had an opportunity to come join one of your workshops at Omega Institute this past June. Yeah. And that was a two, three-day workshop that was just so, oh, experientially powerful. I don't, I don't have the right words to describe my experience of this workshop. It has mm. um, stayed with us as a couple. Um, in so many different ways. We keep oh. coming back to so much that we learned with you. Oh. And 
it's also reshaped my practice and how I work with couples in some ways. It's there, there's, um, what uh, the words that are coming to me right now is there's this like sweet surrender. And I'd love to talk to you more about, about your work and have yeah. introduced you to our listeners. Oh, well, thank you. I'm yeah. looking forward to being introduced to them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, because it's, you know, I'm increasingly spending more and more time in the U.S., particularly in New York, uh, with a view to living there in 2018. Let's come, see come. <laughs> Uh, you know, give us yeah. get all the vibes and the magic happening for that. I'm, I'm um, sending the energy. Can you feel it? Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, it would be a pleasure, which would mean that I would have a lot more to offer to folks who live in that corner of the world. Like me. So, yeah. <laughs> Selfishly really interested in that happening. <laughs> but so, you know, before we, we came on, I was talking with you a little bit um, and we were talking about just the the dance of how hard it is sometimes to put into words the work you do as a sex therapist. It's really difficult. And I think, I think that the, the practice or the, um, the work itself of sex therapy is in a bit of flux. Um, and what I mean by that is because historically sex therapy as a, as a sort of discipline, as a, as an arm of psychotherapy has been around, Probably since we could say the 70s, Masters and Johnson started studying it clinically. Actually, Alfred Kinsey started studying it clinically prior to that. But it was still very much in the realm of science. Right. In the 1970s, that science started to become integrated into couples therapy. But it, you know, of its time, of its era, it was very very intercourse focused, very heteronormative by association. And heteronormativity for your listeners is not um, about being heterosexual necessarily. It is about the implication of normality that is created through binaries or through opposites. So it's based on the assumption that sex only happens when there are two opposing forces, so a man and a woman, a penis and a vagina, this kind of thing. So we call this binary thinking or dualistic thinking, heaven and hell, God and earth. This Black kind of and thing. white. It's very, very present in Western culture. Now, some sexual traditions will uh, really uh, absorb that. A lot of tantric traditions will really emphasize that. I actually prefer to acknowledge it because it's a thing, you know, binaries exist, but there's also a lot of spaces in between. And it's those in-between spaces from a variety of perspectives, gender, sexuality, all kinds of things, that uh, even emotional spectrums that exist in those places between happiness and sadness, for example. These are the places, I think, that the richness happens. Now, going back to sex therapy, going back to sex therapy. So back in the day, in the 1970s, sex therapy started to become a thing. Uh, psychologists, clinical practitioners of the therapeutic arts may go and do a course and say, now I'm a sex therapist. What that would mean would be they would give folks something to do like sensate focus, which is what Masters and Johnson invented. And sensate focus had very good intentions, but it wasn't very sexy. Mm -mm. 
Simple <laughs> focus for those who don't know what it is. It, it's, a, it's a practice of touching. It's a practice of, it's effectively mindfulness. Uh, mindfulness with a small M. With with a focus on caressing each other, on exploring each other, on bringing your awareness into the sensory experience. Yeah. Yeah. No genital touching. It's about establishing a practice of touching without expectation. And that's great. I think that Mm -hmm. aspect of uh, sensate focus is wonderful. Can we back up for one second? Because of I course. think you just said something that was really important that I don't want to wash over. I think our listeners may need this, but you mm-hmm. said without expectation. Mm-hmm. Can we talk for a minute about the why without expectation is so yes. important? <laughs> <laughs> of course we can. All right. So the, the, the thing with expectation is it creates more uh, hmm. it creates more opportunities for disappointment. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not that expectation is a bad thing. It's not. And particularly in long-term relationships, it's very easy to have expectations because um, expectations come with habit, they come with uh, agreements, they come with um, established connections that, you know, but you always have coffee in the morning, that kind of stuff. It's an expectation. We know that this is going to happen. Now, this is not a bad thing, but when it comes to learning new sex practices, expectations are a double-edged sword because if we don't meet the expectation, what happens? We get... So full of so many other distracted emotional experiences. We get full of anxieties. We start perpetuating these stories in our heads. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We feel disconnected. Exactly. And so it's exactly this. We feel disconnected. We go into ourselves and we start running the story in our head or we start running the narrative in our head of if only I had done this, if only he had done this, if only she had done this, if only this were easier, why aren't we doing this properly? Why aren't I normal? Why isn't he normal? Why aren't we normal? What's going wrong? Oh, my God, I think we need to get divorced now. And it's this slippery slope. It goes right there, though. (laughs) (laughs) And so this is the nature of expectation because we have – Uh, it's like putting something on a pedestal. The only place it can go from there is down. (sighs) So when we are working with our sexuality and working on, you know, recreating new erotic connections with our partner or partners, it's really helpful to put expectations aside. Now, we all have them, and I don't want folks to think that this is about, you know, being holier than thou and going, no, no, I have no expectations. <laughs> I'm above it all. No, you're not. No, None of us not. are. <laughs> you're, not, you're not. You're human. You're human. You have expectations. You want things. You get angry. Like, you know, that's life. We all must be real about this. The trick is in acknowledging that you have expectations and recognizing how they distract you from the thing that you really want, which is connection. Mm -hmm. That's all it's about. And creating a place within you that allows for the expectation to be present, 
without getting so caught up in having that expectation met. If it does get met, then great. Hooray. Good on you. That's fabulous. But if it doesn't get met, does that mean that the last 45 minutes you've spent pleasuring your partner, has that, has that been a waste of time? Oh, I love that reframe. Spent, have you spent 45 minutes connecting? So and enjoyed them. <laughs> exactly. All 45 of them. Exactly. Yeah. So this is the thing um, with, with sex and and expanding practices and expectations. And so going back to the sensate focus, which is what we were talking about, mm-hmm. um, and the expectation, the purpose of sensate focus is to create an opportunity to touch and be touched, to simply become aware of sensations arising in your body mm-hmm. without expectation of what should happen. So that is the practice. Yeah. That is the practice. Now, what I was doing in the workshop that you experienced Mm -hmm. is a level up or actually several levels up from that because not only are we experiencing what arises in our body but we are also corralling that energy into different kind of heightened erotic experiences so over the course of that weekend we played with not only minimizing expectation but increasing Um, increasing sensation, increasing awareness, increasing opportunity for connection by practicing different ways of being. But in their essence, they all boil back down to mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Those things don't work if mindfulness is not present. Right. And, And I think it even goes another level. Um, you know, I call much of my work connectfulness and it's kind of this, integrated space of being mindful of the connection, Mm -hmm. right? I -hmm. think the work that we experienced in your workshop was that, and it was also the bodily somatic awareness of like the wholeness. It wasn't just you were mindful and you were in your head, but you were like experiencing pleasure and you were in your body in a totally yes. different way. And I just, for yeah. our listeners, I just want to clarify that this was a fully clothed workshop. Yes. <laughs> and this is the thing, and I, 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 I'm, the, I'm writing a book at the moment and the chapter I'm writing right now is about the intersection of the mindfulness movement and the sexuality communities um, and how, I mean, there is a little bit of crossover and I think there more is coming but by and large, you know, because mindfulness um, in, its, in its origins comes from Buddhist philosophy, which right. I think a lot of folks know that. Uh, and as a result, um, there are aspects of the mindfulness and the wellness movements that can be a little uh, hmm, puritanical, let's say, in their approach, in that there is an assumption or a belief that the body and the desires of the body are less holy, for want of a better phrase. Mm -hmm. Now, that is human judgment. And that is opinion. Mm -hmm. And I'm not here to argue with anybody and make anybody wrong. If that is their belief, that's absolutely fine. That said, folk are going to struggle with dropping into the body if they inherently believe that the body is a place of shame yes. and 
awfulness. Mm-hmm. So being able to create a space for the intersection of the mind, the heart, the spirit, and the body, because we live in bodies. Our bodies are the vehicle through which we experience the world. In order to work with our sexuality, it's an act of radical acceptance to acknowledge that we have a body. (laughs) Oh, that's delicious. (laughs) (laughs) So I think. And to, to radically accept our bodies as they are. Exactly. And so this includes being of whatever age, whatever size, whatever race, whatever ability, whatever gender, all of these things play into Mm. the mindful acceptance of the physicality of sex. Yes. That, you know, at the workshop there were people there of different ages, different body sizes, that I think the assumption is that good sex is only for the young and the slim and the able-bodied. No, it isn't. No. No, it is not. I don't know where I was the other day, but my husband and I were, were in the middle of a conversation or we were either listening to a podcast or a TV show or something. And mm-hmm. something that came up was this, this idea that we're really excited for old age sex. Like, uh-huh. <laughs> like in our 80s, in our 90s, like we want to yeah. experience that, you know, mm-hmm. it's going to be totally different than it is for us now. Yeah. But we're really excited for what that'll look like also. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because it will it will bring a series of limitations mm-hmm. physiologically. You you know your totally. back and your legs and things aren't going to be as strong as they are mm-hmm. now. But with that, it's also going to give you an opportunity for I guess for forced creativity. You're going to have to get <laughs> yeah. You're going to have to get creative, and in the process of doing so, some of the best sex we can have comes from our creativity yeah our creativity and our limitations and again this is an invitation for folk going back to what we're talking about earlier when i was saying that a lot of this tends to be quite sort of heteronormative because we tend to overemphasize the importance of opposites and the importance of intercourse for example Uh as the main event what that does is it reduces creativity yeah, it, I mean, like that's where people talk about vanilla sex. It's just, um, it's like one flavor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a version of vanilla sex, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's not to say that penis and vagina sex, you know, intercourse uh, is a bad thing necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's not a bad thing. But it's important that we recognize that it is part of a tasting plate of opportunities, that it is not the Sunday roast. <laughs> right. And, you know, I, I think there's, there's so many different ways that we can all expand into enjoying different aspects of the sexual experience. Yes. You know, there's, there's even like, I think one of the exercises we did was just a breathing exercise where mm-hmm. we sat facing each other and we were mm-hmm. breathing with each other. Mm-hmm. And even just adding that in, like no actual intercourse, maybe not even touching each other, mm-hmm. but that like sitting cross-legged face to face and breathing together yeah, becomes such 
an intimate experience. And, yeah. and if it's not something you have a regular practice of, introducing it can open up a lot of different kinds of creativity. Mm. And it's amazing that something so simple mm. can create such powerful changes within us um, because, again, I think, you know, a lot of the problems that people experience in their sex lives is not because they're defective. Right. It's because we have a very, very, very inadequate sex education system. Mm. And what I mean by that is if we received sex education at all, it was probably very reproduction focused and it was probably, um, you may or may not have learned about condoms on bananas, uh, which is, I guess, useful if you're inclined to put condoms on bananas. But if you're not, <laughs> it's not very useful, right? The narrative is... It helps us like, see bananas as a phallic object, though. Exactly. It really helps with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the narrative that we get told is, you know, sex is for reproduction. Mm -hmm. We also get told, girls get told that sex is painful and that this is normal that there's no incentive for them to explore beyond this. It's just that's how it's going to be, girls, so, you know, suck it up. Boys get told sex is going to be painful for the girls with no incentive to explore why that might be, to consider an alternative. So they just believe it too. And I'd like to also add in, you know, often girls are separated from boys to talk about menses and menstruation, and yeah. thus there's this unspoken, shameful, girls are dirty idea yes. that gets perpetuated. Yes, all of these things. <laughs> and so over a lifetime of hearing messages about sex that are flat out wrong, they mm. are lies. They are absolute lies. We, and because we don't talk about it socially or very little, mm -hmm. um, those messages of being dirty, of sex being painful, of sex only being for reproduction. When we start to have a visceral experience that is opposite of that or counter to that, and we don't feel that we can talk about it, or if we do talk about it with a friend or a practitioner who's also been educated with the same lies, and they shame us for it or we shame ourselves, what then happens is we internalize that shame. Mm. It, it becomes part of our story. feel like yeah. we are the ones who are bad. Yeah. And then it's really, really hard to connect with another person when every fiber of your being believes that it is flawed. You know, one of the, the benefits of attending your your workshop with my husband, aside from our own intimacy, aside from my own clinical practice, mm. was in regards to parenting our daughters, mm. right? And coming, coming away from that workshop with more of a shared dialogue, a shared language with one another around what kind of conversations we wanted to be having with them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could speak a little bit to what you think on, on the tail end of what's wrong about sex ed. What what is your wish? What do you want sex ed to be inclusive of? Hmm. I think when people get in a panic about sex ed for young people, 
The panic is because people don't want their children to make mistakes. They want uh-huh. the, it's coming from a good place. They want to protect their children. But because as adults, by and large, we are deeply uncomfortable talking about sex and we put that fear onto our children, all that happens is children absorb that fear. They absorb that sense of discomfort that sex is somehow wrong or bad. Mm. In order for that to change, it's, it is about looking to the younger generations for agency, but I think it's really about us as adults changing our narrative within ourselves because when we can be more comfortable talking about sex, then the people around us are going to be more comfortable talking about sex. And I know that from my own experience. So many people say to me, Cindy, how did you become so comfortable? I feel like I can talk to you about sex and I can't talk to other therapists or other doctors or other whatevers about sex. Why is it that you are so comfortable with it? And it's because I've made it a priority. I have spent 20 years learning how to create an environment where sex is on the table, not literally, but, well, sometimes. <laughs> but it could be. <laughs> but, it could be. But certainly the permission to talk about it is on the table. <laughs> All the time. And that automatically gives people permission yeah. to open their mind to this. Yeah. They don't have to agree with me. Your listeners don't have to agree with what I'm saying. But the invitation is to consider what might a world that was comfortable discussing sex look like and how could you be a part of that? Oh, I love that. Does it mean, you know, it's not people are going to be having orgies in the street. That's not what it's going to be. No, but it's, 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 it's permissive. It's inclusive. It, yeah. you know, I, I recently had a conversation with my daughters that started with them asking me about, you know, how babies are made and mm-hmm. went into all of the organic, this is the how. And yeah. then this is all within the course of about three minutes because of their attention span migrated <laughs> into, <laughs> into talking about pleasure. Mm-hmm. And into them, like, opening up their legs and looking, looking at their parts. Fantastic. That's so <laughs> great. And, so and, then, and then went into talking about things like consent and mm-hmm. a whole bunch of other pieces of conversations that were about mm-hmm. how we have relationships and what, Fabulous. you know, when touch feels good and when touch doesn't feel good and how to use our voices and all of these pieces were all apart. It started with how babies are made, but it didn't end mm-hmm. there. Yeah. 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 And that's the thing, you know, for folk listening, I mean, like, you know, let's be clear here that I am not, I'm not a parenting expert and the advice I'm giving is not on how to be a parent. I don't know how to be a parent. I'm not a parent. But what I do know about is sex education and um, letting your child lead the depth of the conversation. Children will only ask as far as their mind can process. Yeah. And if, you know, if they say how, where do babies come from or they start asking questions that are a little more explicit, which they might, mm-hmm. um, they might say, you know, what does this phrase mean? I heard this phrase at school. What does it mean? Or, um, I mean, a common one that I hear from youngsters, they want to know, they'll say, what's a virgin? Or they'll say, what's a slut? Mm-hmm. 
because they hear these words, but they don't really know what they mean. And these are such loaded terms Mm -hmm. that really, really, when we, when it boils down to it, they don't really mean anything. I mean, um, and they're very loaded terms against women as Mm -hmm. well. So, um, you know, sex education, because it's physical, it's sociological, it's emotional, it's political, um, it's spiritual, it's contextual. There are so many layers to it. Um, and the other thing too is that sex education never stops. No. So, you know, your children are, how old are they? My, my girls are seven and almost nine. Okay. So and I, at that and age, I'm, I'm like 42 and still learning. So <laughs> exactly. Well, I've been studying sexuality for 20 years and I'm still learning. Right. So it never ends. Hmm. It never, ever, ever, ever ends. And that myth that sex is for reproduction and that sex is, um, you know, only between a man and a woman or only between, you know, there's all these conditions about how it happens. There are lots of people, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are single. They're not partnered at all. Mm-hmm. I'm still talking to you, single people, you know. You still have a sex life by yourself. Mm-hmm. This is a whole other conversation that makes people terribly uncomfortable. It's a wonderful you know? conversation, though. So this is the thing. Older people, people whose bodies don't meet the standards of beauty people who think they're too fat or they're too thin or they're too whatever um people of different racial backgrounds who think that their skin is not beautiful enough to be deserving people who are less able-bodied who are survivors or who are amputees or whatever the Uh case may be yes and the variations that come with that who you know, whose functionality may be that they, you can't get erections anymore or your erections are unreliable or your capacity for lubrication is not what it used to be or it doesn't happen at all yeah. or you experience pain. All of these things are work-withable. They're work-withable and passion and pleasure can still be part of your vocabulary. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So this is why the narrative of sex must expand beyond intercourse as the sole gauge against which we measure, you know, successful sex, which is again, going back to expectations is why expectations are so unhelpful because it limits our ability to be where we need to be. And for the vast majority of people, our motivations for sex are not reproduction. Yet we pretend that that's why it happens. Yeah. And it's not. It's not. We do not have sex to make babies. <laughs> not at all. I mean, like sometimes, but I, I did <laughs> that literally <laughs> twice in my life. Um, exactly. It, it worked exactly. that many times. Um, <laughs> you know, there was something else that, that we did. There, there's a lot of things that we did. Um, in your workshop, one of the things we did was we sat down and we wrote a list mm-hmm. of 10 types of touch that we liked yeah. or that we wanted. Mm-hmm. And can you talk a little bit about that? Because I feel like there was something so profound that came out of that particular experience in regards mm-hmm. to the permission to think on our own and yeah to open a dialogue, like a rich, deep dialogue that doesn't just have to be about touch, but in this case it was. Yeah. So 
I think again because we don't get taught this kind of communication at school, the way that this gets bypassed in in school education is they'll teach they'll try and teach these techniques through sports because it's more socially acceptable to learn you know how to navigate um touch through a sports game than it Uh is through intimacy and pleasure so we we bypass it you know um and ultimately it doesn't work so being able to reflect on what kind of touch i like I am sure that there were people in that room, in that workshop, who had never been asked that question before. Mm -hmm. Because when we go to touch another or when we go to receive touch, without ever having been taught how to do it, it doesn't occur to us maybe that there are even different ways. So to stop and consider the kind of touch I like um, where on my body I like to be touched gives it slows us down. It's a pro. It's a mindfulness process mm-hmm. of thinking. Oh gosh! First of all, I didn't even realize that I had a choice. <laughs> Second of all, um, when I think about it, I don't. Maybe I don't really know. Or some people may have had a very visceral response immediately. They're like, "Yeah, I know exactly what I like," mm-hmm. and that's okay. You know. But it's about creating the opportunity to to make touch a priority as both a giver and a receiver and to recognize in that context as a receiver that you have some agency, you have some power to be able to say to your partner, this is the kind of touch I like. And that when your partner is touching you, it's not for their benefit. It's for your benefit and that you can ask for what you want and even the practice of thinking about what you want and then the second level up from that is saying what you want. That can be really scary for people. Mm. Being seen, being heard in requesting a particular kind of touch, if it's quite tame, quite mild, through to something really bawdy and really, you know, very erotic, uh, still requires the same degree of vulnerability of asking because... And it's that ask that becomes, that is often so difficult to get people to. Yes. Yeah. 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 Because it's easier for a lot of people will just tolerate or they will endure touch that isn't very nice for them, that isn't very pleasant. And in many cases, the touch that they've seen or that they've experienced before, but not necessarily the the mindful reflection about what feels good and what they enjoy. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So you have permission. We all have permission to consider the way that we like to be touched and to communicate that to those who touch us. We are allowed to do that. This permission giving is so expansive and transformational when couples notice it. It really is. When individuals notice it. I don't want to just label that with couples. When when people notice it. Yeah. And this is the thing. I mean, even again for folk who are single um, or even 
folk in relationships who are not in sexual relationships for you know whatever reason mm-hmm. sex has dropped off in the relationship but they are still intimately emotionally engaged but maybe not sexually engaged which is fine and often very common um but it's a practice in fact whether you're partnered or single that i would encourage people to try on their own anyway because again the in terms of reducing expectations to to practice touching yourself with an experimental mindset is helpful to create opportunities to go wow i actually like touch a bit rougher than i thought i did or i like um you know particularly if it's going to be a bit more explicit um clitoral stimulation for example that it can be very very nuanced and it can change within uh, a person across say a month depending on their menstrual cycle or across certainly across their lifespan what they enjoyed in their 20s they may not enjoy in their 40s 50s 60s you know which i think um, is also another part of this permission the the permission to shift the permission that just because you are a certain way at one chapter in your life doesn't mean mm. that you will always be that way that you can yes. you can change yeah absolutely yeah. absolutely and let's hope you I mean you do change like goodness <laughs> nothing stays the same for too long you know <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's a few other things i want to make sure we get into cuz when okay. when you were teaching us about tantric breath Mm. There were, there, there's a quote, I, I don't know if I have it written down, I'm looking to see if I do, but I'll try to just kind of do this off my memory. But mm. one of the things that you said is, you know, as long as we're alive, right, we're making mm-hmm. noise and we're breathing. Yes. Right? <laughs> yes. Right? There's, there's, there's I ample think I time dead to be people sub- don't breathe. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of my lines. Dead people don't breathe. It's true. I'm going to put that on a T-shirt. They don't make noise either. <laughs> so I, I want us to, to kind of go there and to talk a little bit about this because I, I really took, took away a lot from this piece of the workshop. And I don't know how much of it we could actually – really get the listeners the experience of so much on the podcast, but I think we can introduce some concepts. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, the part of it is, uh, you know, the, that sense of shutting down. Part of the, one of the ways that we shut ourselves down sexually is that we minimize our capacity to feel stuff. And in order to increase our capacity to feel stuff, we uh, need to feel stuff so to do that the ways that are most helpful are through sound and breath and movement (laughs) which sounds really really simple but when we think about many of our sexual experiences or either solo or with partners they tend to be lacking in movement They tend to be lacking in breath. So as we're approaching the orgasm, it might be. (laughs) Like this. And then there's no sound. What if the neighbors hear us? What if the children hear us? What if my roommate hears us? What if my partner hears me and thinks I'm a freak? All of this stuff is going on. So what this contributes to is a very uh, condensed, retracted, reduced kind of sensation. Now, there is nothing wrong with it. 
it's fine. Except that if you find, listeners, if you find that this reductive kind of sex is not doing it for you or never has done it for you, it's boring, it's minimizing, it's, it's, sex has become like, you know, cutting the lawn. It's, it's not, it's not interesting. It's not exciting anymore. Playing simply with sound and breath and movement can alter your entire experience of your body mm-hmm. by simply bringing more oxygen into your lungs. What that does is it oxygenates your blood. It brings more oxygen into the brain. It also activates what we call the parasympathetic nervous system, which is this nervous system that is required to kick in when we want pleasure to exist. So folk who struggle with that, folk who don't, who, where the sympathetic nervous system is kicking in, so that is the nervous system that monitors our fight, flight, freeze. Mm-hmm. When we're highly anxious, <gasps> that's the fight, that's the sympathetic nervous system. It's preparing us for a threat. So we're like, oh, my goodness, something bad's going to happen. Uh, I've got to run at a really ancient kind of level. We don't want that during sex. We want the... Oh, baby, we want the Barry White kind of vibe during sex, right? <laughs> so how we, create the, how we create the Barry White, and, you know, I rely very heavily on Barry White in my workshop because <laughs> I think he's fabulous. I wish, you know, bless his soul, I wish he was still around. Um, I'd like to run a workshop with him, actually, but that's for another conversation. So <laughs> I want to be there. <laughs> <laughs> really? It would be amazing. And... Um, <laughs> um, what that does is it brings more oxygen into, mm-hmm. into the body at a basic physiological level. It activates the parasympathetics, which help us relax. Sound, it, this is how music works. Yeah. So when, you know, people are like, you know, music is, is the voice of God. Music is, you know, people have so many metaphors for how music affects their lives. But when it comes to sex, uh, don't make noise. Yeah. Really? And again, the same with movement. So many cultures emphasize movement. Every cultures that dancing is such a synonym, is such a metaphor for sex. Mm. Yet, when it comes to us actually doing it, we reduce our breath, which reduces our sensation. We reduce our movement, and we reduce our sound. And so, hello, we get stuck. And then we get stuck and then we don't feel anything and then we wonder what's wrong with me. Or what's wrong with your partner. Exactly, because everything's happening in our mind. And this is where this is where mindfulness becomes helpful and a hindrance. It's helpful because it helps us recalibrate our thoughts. If our minds are wandering off and we're thinking about paying bills and washing the car and various things that's not helpful during sex so a mindfulness practice to bring our awareness back to our body or back to what we're doing is useful so that is important however the where mindfulness in its traditional form um, uh, separates from the practice that i taught you in the workshop is that in mindfulness traditionally you would simply observe the sensations without um, exploring and playing with them. You would, you would observe them from a distance. That would be traditional mindfulness. In the practices that we were doing, 
we not only observe the sensations, but we go into them and we expand them. And we expand them with sound, breath and movement. And that's where it's different from traditional mindfulness because it's not, you're not just observing, you're... Um, you're active. You're active, yeah, you're, you're expanding. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I find, you know, that sometimes the more traditional aspects of the mindfulness movement they kind of, you know, poo-poo such activities. It's like, no, 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 you, you want to be able to transcend all of this. And, and you can. There's nothing wrong with transcending all of this. That's fine. But going back to what I was saying much earlier, we have bodies for a reason. They are a vehicle through which we get to experience the world. And the challenge, of course, is to not get attached to expectation. If I don't have this expansive experience, that means I'm broken for sure. No, it doesn't. It means that your body is not responding to this practice, so you try a different practice. That's what it means. So, <laughs> I love But it. these are the ways that we can increase our eroticism. Simp- and you can do, do all of this with your pants on. It's very, very straightforward. Mm-hmm. It's about giving yourself permission to do it. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's and that's such- our weekend. We were all writhing around and making noise, and it was the hottest thing. I'm sure it was the hottest thing at Omega the whole weekend. <laughs> but everybody had their pants on, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was wonderful. Um, you know, there there was this other thing that um, we we talked a lot about at the workshop, and mm. we got to experience through an exercise that you led us through, and that's the idea of surrender. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and in the workshop, we also talked about the difference between surrender and submission. We got into like yeah. a whole philosophical conversation about that. Yeah. Um, but I think that this idea about surrender, it kind of goes hand in hand with this permission that mm. you kind of need both. Yes. Yes. So I think because surrender, surrender is a very hard thing to explain through words alone, I think. Yeah. It's a version of vulnerability, I think. Um, It's about, it is literally about letting go of control and feeling safe enough to give yourself over to an experience without knowing what's going to happen. And for a lot of us, that's really scary really, really scary. Surrendering to an experience, surrendering to another person, your partner, is, it's challenging. But when you give yourself permission to let go of control, to let go of the need to be right, to a degree the need to be safe, which I know sits very much in contrast with so much of what we are taught about about sex and pleasure that, yes, I mean, safety, there's the safety from danger. I mean, you, if you're about to get, you know, murdered then obviously no you're not safe and that's that's a very different kind of explicit level of safety the safety i am talking about 
is an emotional safety to be able to take a risk to surrender. It's almost, it's a paradox in that way. Are you safe enough to risk being unsafe? Mm -hmm. And people struggle with this, men and women struggle with this because for men to surrender, it can involve them letting go of their ideas of being masculine or being manly or being the, you know, the strong one Mm -hmm. for women. It can mean a struggle with uh, their internal politics around, but I'm a strong woman or I'm a capable woman or I'm a woman that can have it all. If I surrender to somebody, if I surrender to a man, what does that say about me as a woman? So it can bring up a lot of stuff for people. If you're resentful, if you've been having arguments with your partner, then the last thing you feel like doing is surrendering to them because, you know, they're a bad person. I'm angry with you. I'm not going to surrender to you. And if you're someone who has a history of sexual abuse or trauma, yes, it's, it's got a whole nother layer of complication. It really does. <laughs> it really, really does. So in that way, Surrender is an advanced practice, but you practice it in increments. You practice it in eyedropper droplets. And you practice initially surrendering to even the possibility of going near sex for pleasure. That is a surrendering act in itself then through different practices on your own and then maybe, maybe when you're ready, different practices with a partner. And understanding that surrender is that willingness to drop past the fear and to start using the body as a guide to start reconnecting, re Membering, and I use remembering with a hyphen mm-hmm. in the middle of between the re and the membering to remember that the body has infinite wisdom, it knows what it needs. And when there's been a history of sexual abuse, that knowledge gets severed, but we can bring it back together again through small, gentle practices that reconnect, that remember what whole integrated sexuality feels like because that's what we're born with. Babies are born with integrated sexuality. And that doesn't, that's not integrated eroticism. Babies are not erotic. That's a very different thing. But babies, children are sexual beings in, 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 in that they are pleasure-seeking, sensation-seeking creatures. Connection-seeking, attachment-seeking. Yeah. They, that gets pulled out of us as we grow up, as we get experience abuse, various things. And, and just to kind of, for our listeners, to kind of give this another flavor, we know that babies, for example, regulate their heart rate and their body temperature mm-hmm. when they're mm-hmm. on, when they're skin-to-skin on the chest of their parents. Yeah. And I yeah. think that's, that's just one example, but we all do that. And in many ways, that's what a sexual experience also brings us, exactly. that regulation. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so we have that instinct within us, but when that is severed mm-hmm. through, uh, through abuse, 
through bad sex education, through yucky experiences, through shame and self-doubt and all of the ways that we get disconnected, which it happens to everybody. Yep. Um, one of the pathways back to wholeness is through the body, mm-hmm. is through reconnecting to that sense of, of vitality within the body that it's, we are born with. It's a form of liberation. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I have, and it's a right. It's, it's a, right. a right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have this note written down in my notebook. Um, when we were talking about surrender, I must have written this down. And it, it says, give self over to receive. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, what I, does that mean to you? <laughs> to me, I think that's, I think that kind of encapsulates what I feel intuitively, like on a very somatic level about what surrendering is. Yeah. It's, it's about letting myself be receptive. Mm. Yes. You know? Yeah. It's, it's about not having to do, but, um, but being able to experience. Yes. Yeah. And I think for different people, it will come up differently. And so having conversations about what surrender means is so good. I mean, in the workshop, you know, that conversation went on for some time and I brought up the distinction between surrender and submit because Mm -hmm. sometimes people get those two confused and they're not the same. And I don't have a clear definition of how they are different, but I opened that up to the group. And lots of people had lots of different ideas about how they are different. Some people talked about it from the perspective of consent, that in submission, maybe you're not consenting. And then other people said, no, no, that can be a form of consensual practice as well, which it can. So, And I I keep wondering about this. One of the places where it always has taken me since since we had this dialogue, because I've thought about it a few times since, is Mm -hmm. the idea of power and how that's playing into this whole conversation Mm, as well. Yeah, yeah. And I think the thing also with sex and power, which is a huge discussion. (laughs) I'll have you back on and we can talk (laughs) about it. To talk about it, really. But, um, you know, we look at power and uh, what's coming to mind, and it's awful, but it's the truth. It's what's in my mind right now. Trump and the and the pussy grabbing. Oh gosh! Like that. God, where do I start with that? That is, that's an abuse of power. That's not what we, you and I, are talking about. But because when we start talking about sex and power in the same sentence or in the same paragraph or the same conversation, it is very easy to default to something as vulgar and crass as that display of abuse of power. That's not what we are talking about, just to clarify. Thank you for that clarification. (laughs) I think it's a very important one. Oh, good grief. Anyway, so (laughs) I don't want to. All right. Um, Well, politics come into sex. I mean, there are sexual politics in every relationship. Yes. Yeah, yes, and this is the thing. So this is how power is a really integral part of sex. And now it's impossible to avoid power dynamics in human relationships. That power is embedded, power play is embedded in the human condition. Now, where that is 
uh, intersects with sexuality is in that if we try to pretend that it doesn't exist in our relationship with our partner or we try to pretend that it doesn't exist within us, we are denying ourselves uh, a fundamental aspect of the human condition. Power dynamics exist in relationships. If we ignore them, uh, they become the shadow mm. in a, in a mm-hmm. sort of psychodynamic context. Yep. Now, in order for that shadow to not rule us, which is probably what's happening in Trump's case, his shadow is ruling him because he doesn't bring it into his consciousness. I don't want to spend time psychoanalyzing him, but anyway. <laughs> I, it's okay. I totally welcome this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> think, oh, Melania, my goodness. Anyway, but <laughs> um, we need to bring, we need to bring our shadows into consciousness, into awareness, and we can play with them explicitly in our sexual relationships. And that does not mean that our relationships need to be, um, I think sometimes we can get caught up in, in associating power with violence. Mm. Nothing to do with that. They intersect, Mm -hmm. but they're also very, very different. Mm. Power and surrender go hand in hand because it's even the ability to recognize that we have power, we have agency as an individual and the process of surrendering is to give our power over to a situation or a person. And that is a very powerful act in and of itself. It's also a very erotic, very erotic dynamic. And it's one that is infused and embedded with Layers upon layers of trust. Yes. Yes, indeed. You know, and vulnerability, trust. I mean, that, that is the sacred space. Yes. Yeah. This is absolutely correct. And then the ability to communicate through that. And where traditional, um, more fear-based sex education would say, avoid, avoid, avoid what they are doing is shutting down the fact that that dynamic exists, whether we like it or not. Mm. That dynamic is present in every relationship on the planet, whether we like it to be or not. If we pretend it is not there, we are operating from a shadow place. And this is exactly how sexuality can take us like, can upnotch it can can just mm-hmm. take us up level us and take us to a whole nother level because yeah. we start having these conversations and experiences because because we start going there yes yeah. yes mm. so being able to integrate that you know power is almost the i mean i, I guess even in it's it's one of its um Synonyms, it's electricity. You can plug into a source of power that can energize the relationship or energize the sexual connection. Power can also, you know, with the wrong switch and the wrong plug, it can burn your house down. Yeah. Absolutely, you know. Yeah. So you've got to be respectful. You've got to play with it respectfully. This is the sacredness. Yeah, and if you don't learn how to play with power, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. 
It just means that it's going to have power over you. You learn how to navigate the electricity in your home. You learn to not stick a knife into the, into the socket because it's a bad thing to do. But if you don't learn the equivalent of that in an erotic context and you run around sticking knives into erotic sockets and wonder why things are going wrong or that there are knives sticking out of the sockets all over your house, but you're ignoring them because it's too hard. What's that going to do to your sexual relationship? Oh, you know, you just said something that, that I want our listeners to, to really be mindful of. It, it was such an important statement. You said, if you don't learn how to play with power, it's going to have power over you. Yeah. That, that is like, I don't know, like that, that was just a mind blowing moment for me. So oh. I imagine many of our <laughs> listeners are going to have a moment there. Oh, I wanted good. to All pause right. with it. It was big. <laughs> And so, so as we talk about this power and this electricity and the sacredness, it brings me back to Tantra. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because what I learned from you is that this is a way to harness that power. And to, yes. Yeah. Yes. So Tantra in its, in its origins way back in the day, um, you know, there's lots of different theories about where it comes from. We certainly know it comes from Central Asia. There's different versions of it. There's Indian versions of it. There's Chinese versions of it. There's sort of Tibetan versions of it. It tends to have its roots somewhere in sort of Buddhism and Hinduism kind of way, way, way back. But what we teach now, the neo-tantra movements, are a, first of all, of quite a watered-down version of the original versions, let that be said. Um, but secondly, it is... It's a level up from your standard mindfulness practice insofar as mindfulness basic teaches us, like I was saying, to simply observe sensations. Tantra is where we bring those sensations back into our consciousness and we start trying to manipulate them. It's almost like um, mindfulness magic. We start to... We've learned how to control ourselves through mindfulness. We've learned how to uh, reduce our expectation and increase our attention span. And now we start bringing back uh, elements of power and sensation and pleasure that mindfulness standard would invite us to ignore, or not to ignore, but not to respond to Tantra levels up and invites us to not only respond, but to experiment. Mm -hmm. ah. Still with the, and it was still with the lessons of, you know, non-attachment, non, um, limited expectation, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this, this has been such a rich discussion. And I, I feel like, I mean, well, I know because I've, I've been in your presence before that I can continue to talk to you for hours upon hours upon days. Um, so I know this isn't going to be our last conversation, but no. as for, for the purpose of the podcast, is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? Um, anything else you well, feel is important to add to this conversation? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think sex is probably, I mean, to me, it's probably the most important thing in the world. Um, and that's why I've made a career out of this. But I don't advise others necessarily do that because it's not the easiest career path. Let that be said also. Um, 
<clears throat> but I think sex is something that you cannot ignore, mm-hmm. even if you want to, because it's like ignoring. It's it's like yeah, you can ignore it, but you will never completely rid it from your system. Mm-hmm. When you ignore things that are as powerful as sex they will come out in another way. And, you know, it's like the balloon effect. You know when you get a balloon that's blown up and you squeeze it and so you might restrict the air in one part of the balloon, but where does that air go? It doesn't disappear. It goes to another part of the balloon. So it's the same with sexuality. You can restrict it in one part of your life, but it's going to come out somewhere The energy is going to come out somewhere else. It's just how it is. Yeah. So, yeah. And um, do you have any advice for the therapists in our listening community who maybe aren't so comfortable opening up discussions around sex and sexuality and how they could maybe get started in terms of ex- other than listening to this podcast? Mm, I think it's really important for therapists who are, are, who are uncomfortable with sex to acknowledge that they are uncomfortable with sex because sometimes they can do more harm than good. Mm. Um, don't take on clients' sexuality if you genuinely feel like you're out of your depth. Refer them on to somebody who is competent with sexuality. That said, you uh, can go and increase your knowledge. Now, you don't need to necessarily get formal qualifications in sex therapy. Um, I'm not quite sure how all of that works in the US anyway. Um, but there are, you know, attending workshops, reading books, watching videos, learning about sexuality through the vehicle of your own eroticism is a helpful place to start. Not so much that you're going to tell other people to do what you did necessarily, but when you start learning how sexuality sexuality can be integrated into your life, it's it's much it's a much easier place to be able to then share that with other people but when you are the recipient of the same negative messages that we all are from a sexually repressed society and you don't acknowledge that you're operating from your shadow mm-hmm. and you can cause more damage for your clients this way so part of taking ownership of that is also in being able to say to your clients you know, sexuality is not my area. I think it's really important, but I'm going to refer you on to somebody else or um, I'm happy to discuss it to a point, but, um, you know, let's just see how we go with this. It's You don't need to be an expert, but I think it's helpful to recognise your limitations and... Anybody can learn this stuff, though. It's, it's more about whether or not you want to invest the energy in learning about it. It's about your curiosity <laughs> level yeah. and your openness there. You know, and you know, I, I love this part um, of what you're talking about here because so much of what I'm trying to bring forth with this podcast, with the practice of being seen, mm. is helping mm. the clinical community see their own biases and the stuff that they bring into the work and how they can kind of expand that when they start to really look within and see themselves, how they can get out of the way. And so you're, you're talking about that. And I love that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And, and I think one of the things that makes it so difficult is because there is no black and white with it. There is no right and wrong with it. It's, and it's increasingly 
expansive and it intersects with mental health. It intersects with Mm. physical health. It intersects with spirituality. It intersects with so many different areas. Um, And it's, you know, it's still a very new field. So, And the combination of sex therapy with relationship therapy is still a very new field. Absolutely, very much so. And this is the thing. I meet a lot of relationship therapists. Uh, who are not sex therapists mm-hmm. um, because it really is a very different set of skills and where people like uh, John Gottman and Harville Hendricks and these sorts of folks who are leaders in relationship stuff and fabulous, but their knowledge of sexuality and and the embodiment of eroticism is not so great. Mm. Not so great. So you've got to go to other folks for that kind of stuff. Yeah. Cindy, I want to thank you so much. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you? And yes. also when to expect your book to be released. Oh, I can't wait to read it. I, I really can't wait for it either. <laughs> um, so you can find me at cindydarnell.com, C-Y-N-D-I-D-A-R-N-E-L-L.com. And we'll include a link to Cindy's website in our show notes. Oh, good. At the moment, I am in Australia and I'm planning on being in the US permanently around the middle of 2018, maybe a bit earlier, sort of April, May. But in the meantime, if there are therapists, practitioners who want to talk about their practice uh, with me, I do offer sessions on Skype. And the good news is that the East Coast, US East Coast and where I am in Melbourne, Australia, uh, the time difference is, I mean, it's vast, but it actually works out quite well. So my, uh, your evening is my morning um, and it works out well for everybody. It's quite doable mm-hmm. um, for either supervision or um, mentorship on that yes. level. And for folks who are interested in therapy, I offer it through Skype as well same sort of thing and otherwise I have uh, I have an online video series called the Atlas of Erotic Anatomy and Arousal which is really helpful for clinicians to learn about how the body works from a sex and pleasure perspective uh, it teaches and this is how, also good for the, the average person the, the, the lay person absolutely yeah, yeah because again our rudimentary sex education does not teach us how the body works from a sex and pleasure perspective. And people tend to think, oh, but I know about sex. I know that the penis goes in vagina, in the vagina. I'm like, "Mm, but that is, that's Mm. that's not even hard. That's not, that's barely the beginning. We wanting to talk about pleasure. We want to talk about touch. We want to talk about sensation and eroticism. We want to talk about why erections are unreliable. We want to talk about why orgasm for a lot of women is an unusual concept. And that's what the Atlas of Erotic Anatomy and Arousal covers. Mm -hmm. And my book is hopefully coming out about the middle of next year, probably around about the time that you're in New York. I, that I moved to the US. So we'll have a Um, big launch party when your book comes out. Yes, absolutely. It will definitely (laughs) Definitely. So um, the title at present is called Come to Mind, Unlocking the Secret to Erotic Desire Through the Mind, Body and Heart. Oh, that's delicious. (laughs) (laughs) So it's about that combination of, um, of, you know, bringing mindfulness to embodiment, to to sensuality, to to eroticism, um, 
because I think our world needs a lot more of that. So that's the working title. It may change, but uh, at the moment, that's what it's called. Mm. So. So delicious. Thank you again for joining us. I'm so grateful. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm really looking forward to um I'm looking forward to hearing this. And folk can find me. I'm on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook as well. So but you'll put all those links. I'll I'll put all those links in our show notes. Yeah. And <laughs> I promise when Cindy's book gets published and released, I'll also be sharing that like wildfire all over social media. So yeah. um follow the practice of being seen, follow Cindy, and you will know more about when her work is available. And if you could also, Cindy has been coming for the past two years to Omega Institute um, mm-hmm. in New York, um, in upstate New York to lead these workshops. And I'm not sure if you travel elsewhere, but I know you've been to Omega twice in the past two years. Mm-hmm. And, and may- I hope to come back. I'm, yeah. I'm planning on coming back next year. Um, and yeah, I, if you want to bring me anywhere, I'll travel. I'm, I'm quite <laughs> the travel bug, as most Australians are. We're kind of you know, we're gypsies at heart. I think because we're so isolated down here that we all travel all the time because we have to, to participate in the world. It just comes with the territory. So yeah, I'll, if you want me to run a workshop for you, I'll come. I'll oh. say yes. Assume I will say yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. And I especially love being in the US. I really love it. It resonates with me, that land. I really, mm. and particularly the East Coast, I just think it's fab. And I love the people and I love the, I love the enthusiasm. Americans, to me, when I think of Americans, I think of enthusiasm. Hmm. You know, Australians are a little bit sleepy. So, you know, they're good. I don't, you know, no disrespect to Australians, but they're all a bit like, meh, whatever. You know, and Americans are like, wow, and then what? I'm like, wow, cool, because that doesn't happen in Australia. So <laughs> I, I wonder, too, though. I mean, you're, you're bringing to, t- to light such rich conversations about sex and sexuality. And, you know, I think I, I, probably in Australia, too, but certainly here in the U.S., we live in such a repressed society that the conversations yeah. that you're bringing to light are just so like we want more. We want to eat this up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And, and yeah, I mean, look, there's, there's a lot of big cultural differences between the US and Australia, which I won't go into now necessarily. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to bringing my work to the US with more uh, regularity and certainly with a view of, of, being a, of being a resident in New York City in 2018. Awesome. You'll be one of, we're cl- pretty close. I'll close enough to call you a neighbor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to, to your being here. So Cindy, thank you again. I really appreciate My your pleasure. presence on the practice of being seen. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. Oh gosh. Yes. Oh, so I totally adore Cindy Darnell and I hope you can tell why. I love the approach that she brings and the freedom and the, the passion that she brings to talking about sex and sexuality and the erotic and pleasure and the dance between power and, and spaces in between the binary. I learned so much in a very, well, I guess sensual is the word, and creative way about sex and its potential. And I'm, you know, I'm not just talking about intercourse here. I'm talking about like, how sex is another portal into helping us fully embody ourselves and be ourselves and learning about who we are. Cindy has some major talent when it comes to to that exact process, and it's one of the reasons why I totally adore working with her. So again, 
We would love to hear your feedback about this episode and follow up on any questions that you might have for Cindy in a future episode. You can send us the questions at practiceofbeingseen.com slash feedback, or you can shoot me an email at practiceofbeingseen at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your feedback about this episode and any other one as well. I'd also like to thank you for listening. I'd encourage you to subscribe if you haven't already on your Apple or Android device. If you're on Apple Podcasts, we'd also love to ask for you to leave us a review. It's pretty simple. It doesn't take too much effort. Just go ahead into the search bar, search for practice of being seen, and then click on reviews. Go ahead and leave a quick little review and let us know what you think of the show. It'll really help us to spread the word and help others find us. For more great content, check out practiceofbeingseen.com. Tune in next week for another great episode. The Practice of Being Seen podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, along with the support of my amazing behind-the-scenes team, Nicole Stevenson and Christy Hausler. Music by Chris Ferris Jr. and Sr. and produced by Kidney Stone Studio. We hope that you enjoyed the show and will join us next week for another episode of the Pobscast. Brought to you by Connectfulness. <laughs>